session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwe, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. We won't be taking calls today because I do have a guest who I'll be introducing to you shortly. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, um, and you can uh, listen to the shows as they're uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. But let me introduce to you my guest for tonight. I've had him on the show a few times before but wanted to bring him on tonight because of things that have been gaining a lot of attention in the media. Uh, as we'll talk about, it's not that these issues are new, but the way they're being covered is new in some regard, or at least is gaining some attention. So let me introduce you to Jamon Hicks. Again, if you've seen the show before or listened to the show before, you've probably seen him a few years back. So Jamon Hicks is a partner at Douglas Hicks Law APC in Los Angeles, California. He became a partner after spending four years as a senior associate with the Cochran firm in Los Angeles, California. He also worked for six years at the law offices of Carl E. Douglas in Los Angeles. Mr. Hicks practices in the area of civil litigation and criminal defense and represents plaintiffs, defendants in state and federal courts. His civil litigation experience involves civil rights, wrongful death, catastrophic personal injury, employment and police misconduct cases. He also has tried numerous felony and misdemeanor criminal cases such as murder, attempted murder, assaults and battery, crimes against peace officers, driving under the influence, and drug and gun possessions. He has the unique experience of litigating both civil and criminal matters in federal and state courts. He prides himself on representing David against Goliath. In addition to practicing law, Mr. Hicks was hired as the youngest member of the adjunct faculty at Loyola, School, Loyola Law School as a trial advocacy professor. He is also an adjunct professor at West Los Angeles Law School, where he teaches evidence. For four years, he coached Loyola's number four nationally ranked burn trial advocacy team. He serves as a guest lecturer teaching trial skills to law and high school students. Mr. Hicks has also participated on and helped organize numerous panels on criminal criminal law, professional development, and other issues relevant to the legal community at various Los Angeles area law schools. He's also been quoted and profiled in numerous newspaper publications, including the LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, CNN, Entertainment News, the OC Register, and Press Enterprise. For his active community involvement, as well as early career accomplishments, he was selected as Daily Journal's 2012 Five Associates to Watch. He received the honorary uh, A. Leon Higginbotham Memorial Award from the National Bar Association in 2012. And he was also spotlighted as one of, one of Los Angeles' top black attorneys in the L.A. Focus newspaper in 2011. He has been profiled in Los, the Los Angeles Times business section, How I Made It, and Mr. Hicks was selected at, as National Bar Association and Impact's inaugural 2010 Nation's Best Advocates 40 Lawyers Under 40. He's also been recognized by the National Trial, Lawyer, Trial Lawyers Association as a top 40 under 40. And additionally, he is recognized by the Super Lawyers Magazine 10 years in a row as a Super Lawyer 2014 to 2019 and a Rising Star 2009 to 2013. He's also a finalist for the California Young Lawyers Association's Jack Berman Young Lawyer of the Year Award. 
Mr. Hicks serves on various professional educational and community boards. In 2012, he was elected as the youngest ever president of the California Association of Black Lawyers. In 2009, Mr. Hicks served as president for the John M. Langston Bar Association, where he was also elected as the youngest president in the association's history. For his outstanding leadership and dedication, Mr. Hicks received the CABL's President's Award at the completion of his term. He is a member of Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles, the Los Angeles County Bar Association, Multicultural Bar Association, Los Angeles Junior Chamber of Commerce, and Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, Inc. He is also a member of the prestigious LA chapter of 100 Black Men. Mr. Hicks also served as special counsel for the Yes You Can Nonprofit Foundation. Additionally, he has served on the boards of the California Young Lawyers Association. Please welcome Mr. Jamon Hicks. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. Let me see how I flip this around. So I'm on Instagram Live trying to make this work. So Jamon, as I mentioned, we uh, are here to talk about a topic that has been very much in the media lately with the very unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, public murder of George Floyd, which then has led to a series of protests and outrage, but the anger is not new. These issues are not new, but it has received a certain type of attention, intention and energy that we haven't seen or we haven't seen maybe as sustained and we're hoping to be sustained. And that's why I wanted to have you on uh, tonight so we could talk about this perspective and especially because you can add a legal perspective of not only what's happened, what's going on and how we got here, but also potentially what we can do in the future. So thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So um, tell us a bit about, you know, what you think about what's been going on. I mean, I'm sure obviously it's a broad question, but when you look at what's happening now and uh, what we can maybe do first, what are your just first impressions of what you see happening? Uh, The first thing obviously is anytime I see another, um, black man that's killed by the police in any fashion is disturbing. It's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Sadly, um, based on what I do on a daily basis, I'm dealing a lot with families that have lost a loved one, um, whether it's from the shooting, whether it's from a beating, um, whether it's from taser, pepper spray. Um, we deal with this all the time. Mm-hmm. So while for a lot of people to see it um, day after day, for us, we always see it day after day. What I think is most troubling about the Floyd situation is one, it was on video, but the fact that this was eight minutes, 46 seconds of torture, mm-hmm. where you have this officer just with his knee in Mr. Floyd's neck for such an extended period of time. You see that officer shifting his weight as if it was no big deal, as if he's done this before or he's been trained to do this. You see the officer putting his hands in his pocket in a very nonchalant way. And I think that that visual has captured um, the United States, the world, in a way that's much different than other situations that are famous. Um, And because of that, I think you're seeing uh, unity in a way we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm optimistic about that unity. I'm I'm happy to see that this is not just a a Black Lives Matter in the sense that only blacks are marching. Um, I'm glad to see that this is a movement that has has gained the attention of everyone, uh, whether it's uh, gender, race, age, 
location. It has mobilized us in a way that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I am optimistic about where we go forward. But also I have some caution because I have seen before where you have this initial anger, this initial frustration, and then something else dominates the airwaves and we forget about uh, the, the, the different cases that had us so upset. So Yeah. You know, I, I saw you on a panel last week and you shared uh, uh, the words of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who wrote, I think it was in an article he wrote, but nonetheless he said he feels right now he's between hope and history, um, meaning he has hope that things maybe can get better. There's this energy. People seem to be wanting to make a difference. But history also tells them that there's been, first of all, many years of this going on, but also many times where people seem to be energized. There seemed to be an outcry or a, a very clear misjustice had taken place. And then, it, as you said, it faded away or things did not uh, make a change over time. It fizzled out. And so there is that fear that that could happen again, that this could be a flash in the pan. And then we go back to, quote unquote, things as normal. And I think one thing that that is also different about this situation is you have the COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So not only do you have CNN, MSNBC playing this brutal murder over and over and over for days on end, mm -hmm. you have people that normally would be at work or people that would normally have some other distraction confined to being at home to have to watch it over and over again. That's that unique situation also, I think, allowed people that may not normally see this have to digest it and have to deal with it. And so you you also got a protest of those that were frustrated by just everything that's going on. And we saw that George Floyd's murder was the tipping point. So you have a lot of people that are frustrated over unemployment. You have a lot of people that are, are frustrated about how COVID is actually being handled. You have people that are doubting whether or not the information we are receiving mm -hmm. is accurate. Um, the healthcare system being frustrated. And when you combine all of that, it's just toxic. And I think what you are seeing is people that are just frustrated with the status quo. They're unhappy and this movement is larger than just George Floyd. It's a it's a larger discussion about race. It's a larger discussion about unemployment, socioeconomic issues that are all coming together. And I think what we're seeing is that outside of race, a lot of us are more connected than we are divided. And the more that we can build coalitions together and work together on issues, we will realize many of our interests are more aligned, mm -hmm. but it takes that discussion. And at least what is coming from this tragedy is that discussion. And that, that gives me optimism. But like Kareem said, I think so. He, he always gives a brilliant quote. Mm -hmm. He's because he's truly an activist more so than he's one of the best Lakers ever, uh -huh. but he's, <laughs> he's truly an activist. And I, I share his concern. I understand his concern, but we do want to have that optimism that moving forward, because this does seem like a different movement mm -hmm. that there will be some change. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm hopeful too. And I'm going to hold on to that hope. And I hope it's not going to fizzle out and people are motivated. It does feel a little different. We were talking about this before the show that, you know, when you're in anything, it always feels different because you forget what you felt last time when it then fizzled out. Um, but, you know, what you all said about COVID, I think that's an interesting, there's a lot, a lot of factors, of course, anything this 
significant is going to have many factors. The COVID thing for me is interesting because I was talking about this when COVID first was becoming, you know, people were doing the lockdowns and things that what I thought was beautiful. Now people disagree about some of the facts and things of that nature. But when we talk about what happened is not everyone was equally as vulnerable, right? Um, Now we do see that it's actually affecting people of color more, but especially we'd hear a lot. It's more about the elderly, although that's not completely true, but more vulnerable. And what I thought was quite beautiful was that although everyone was not equally as vulnerable, everyone bought in to do something about it. That we all felt that in this case, a different type of justice, you know, biologically or medically for people to be safe, we can all make a sacrifice, even if it might not directly involve us. And I thought that was beautiful and hopefully would carry through. And I would talk about, uh, this was actually before all the protests saying, you know, we talk about getting back to normal and I get that feeling. We miss a lot of things about how life used to be before the pandemic. But before this all happened, there was a lot of people suffering. And I was thinking about uh, people in poverty, the homeless population, people around the world suffering and African-Americans in the United States amongst uh, other groups. And so we don't want to just rush back to normal because normal was already sick itself. And so hopefully all those things kind of coming together that we can come together, sacrifice, even if it doesn't directly involve you, although a threat to justice anywhere uh, is a threat to justice everywhere. Um, but that we all could come together, even if it wasn't you personally getting affected or your group or however, and tear down some of that us them. I'm hopeful that that might also play a part along with people. Look, having more free time might make it more likely that they get involved, which is, you know, it's bad that we have that free time maybe because of what's happened to the economy and unemployment and all that. But hopefully it will lead to people taking more action and realizing that they need to do something and they are doing something. And so I'm, I'm hopeful for that. And lastly, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, George Floyd, and it, it was heartbreaking when I saw that, the video and the way it was. And there's so many things about that where, you know, he says, Mama, that was heartbreaking, the length of time, how cavalier the officer is with his hands in his pockets, just literally taking the life from someone. Uh, so many heartbreaking things. Uh, but me, you and I also spoke about this issue, too, that we say his name and we repeat his name. And even when I was uh, protesting, I, we would say his name. And, of course, it's about him and the huge injustice and how his life was taken away. His human rights were not honored in the least degree. But it's also about all the people's names we don't even know or all the people's names who didn't get in the media who also suffered a similar fate and that police brutality and injustice and racism in this country is not something isolated to a few incidents. It's affected so many people, many of whom we don't even know. And, um, you know, I don't know if you could, we, you know, I know talking about systemic racism is a big issue, but I just want to hear your thoughts on that, that, you know, we say his name or we say her name, Breonna Taylor, or others who we know, but it's also to honor the people that we don't know their names who also suffered a similar fate. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. You raise a great point. Um, We all know the name of Sandra Bland and what happened to Mm -hmm. her and the questions about whether or not it was suicide or whether or not there was some some untoward actions by the officers, especially given the fact that we were able to see the stop and the aggressive manner by which that officer dealt with her. Mm -hmm. Well, there was also a case around the same time, uh, Waukesha Wilson, that got some you know, publicity, but not the type of national publicity of Sandra Bland. Our office actually worked on that case. And the Say Her Name movement, the Black Lives Matter, um, was very active in Waukesha Wilson as well as Sandra Bland. And what happened is during a city council meeting, they would not say her name. They would not say Waukesha Wilson's name. Mm -hmm. 
and you would hear the Black Lives protesters yelling at the city council, you need to say her name. Don't don't try to run away from it. Mm-hmm. Say her name because when you say a person's name mm-hmm. or when you have a connection with a person, right, right, it is much harder to have the same racist views that you possess. And so to try to pretend like that person is not human or mm-hmm. they're not um, someone that you connect with, it's easier to dismiss them. And I think it is powerful now that part of the uh, lingo in the protest is forcing people to repeat the name mm-hmm. over and over and over again so that they're not just lost. We remember right. George Floyd. We remember Michael Brown. We remember Ezel Floyd. Those names, we've come, Trayvon Martin, right? Mm-hmm. We've come to know those. But there are so many more. There are hundreds of people that you don't know that have had the same fate, unfortunately. And I think that's when you see people so upset about the police. Because you were able to see uh, the officer's um, disrespect for Mr. Floyd's rights and his cavalier attitude, that's a bigger problem Mm -hmm. than just race, right? That's a problem about the way that they're being trained. He didn't just in the moment decide to kneel on Mr. Floyd's neck. They're being taught that. They're being, you know, shown this as a technique, which is a problem. And you've you've even seen that there have been other videos that have emerged from other jurisdictions where officers are deploying the same tactic. Mm-hmm. That's the bigger problem here yeah. is that don't isolate the George Floyd incident and make it appear as though this is just the one time this tactic was used. This is a tactic that's often used um, against people all over the nation. That's a problem that we have to address. Absolutely. And, um, you know, having you here and your legal perspective on things, I think, will be good. Because, as I said, there's so many aspects to what's going on. You know, it's obviously about racism, but it goes into economic issues. It goes into police issues. It goes into cultural issues, historical issues. And we obviously won't be able to cover all of them almost ever, but especially in this show. But I especially want to get your legal perspective uh, on policing, on some of the legality of what's going on and what's happened. And also, I know you're on a task force and working towards trying to bring about change to make uh, some of these things hopefully become less frequent to the point where they're not happening anymore. So after the break, uh, I'll be on with attorney Jamon Hicks. We'll continue talking about George Floyd, police brutality, racism in America. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm joined again by attorney Jamon Hicks. We're talking about George Floyd, police brutality and everything that has been going on, unfortunately, for so long in the United States, but especially has been gaining a lot of media attention. And also, you know, maybe a good way to transition into what I want to talk about next with you about the legal side and progress is the protests. And so um, the protest is not new. Protest is older than America. Uh, America was almost created out of protests in some ways, you could say. Um, America was also created on some very horrible things as well, which we won't get into detail at this moment. But um, the protests have been you know, very inspiring. It's been uh, a lot has happened. There was a lot of the rioting and looting got a lot of attention early on. This past weekend, I think it was much more peaceful from what I observed. I was able to participate in a protest in Los Angeles on Saturday. Uh, and so sometimes people when you see people protesting. I've heard this before. I remember in the Women's March and other things like, well, 
you're protesting. Who cares? Like, what's the point of protesting? Okay, you go make signs and walk around for a little bit. And, and sometimes protests begin and end there. But protests can also lead to change. And that's we've seen that throughout history. When you look at history and what has led to change, very often there was protests of different kinds that took place that led to change. And in this short amount of time, we saw that protests likely expedited the arrests of the other three officers in the case of George Floyd. We're also seeing that today it was introduced in Congress a Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which uh, I don't know how promising it'll be, what's going to happen as far as it getting passed, but just that it's becoming part of the conversation to pass legislation, to legally make changes is very significant. So maybe you could share some perspective. And I know, you're, as I mentioned earlier, you're on a task force trying to bring about some change uh, in this regard. But any thoughts you have on the legal side of what's going on and why these laws matter? Yeah, and maybe if that's not too broad of a question. Uh, I think, number one, anytime you have pressure, it brings about change, right? And so um, what we saw with the initial protests um, was that they were trying across the nation, mm -hmm. right, which is what caught everybody by surprise. We expected there was going to be these protests in Minneapolis. We saw that coming, right? But to watch Los Angeles mm -hmm. join in with D.C., with Atlanta, with Chicago, and then eventually, like you said, it spread all over the 50 states, we've never seen anything like that. Yeah. And so if we've never seen anything like that, legislators haven't seen anything like that. So what ends up happening is now we have the attention of the legislators. Now we have the momentum because we, we have the power. We want to see certain laws change or else we're going to vote you out of office. Mm -hmm. So when I was talking with this task force, and this is a task force of attorneys, approximately uh, 20 attorneys right now, um, and we also have an advisory council that, that's comprised of politicians, community activists, to also give us some guidance, because the question now is where do we go from here? Right. Is that it, for California or national? This is a all California, California. Los Angeles-based attorneys. Mm -hmm. The goal is to unite with Cal California and attorneys across the nation. But right now, this is Los Angeles. What can we do to mobilize our community and, and actually get change? So we came up with a three-part three part platform right now. Number one, there was a there was a bill, an assembly bill, 392, AB 392, that was proposed by Dr. Shirley Weber, who was amazing, out of San Diego. She had a very simple goal, right? I'm going to con consolidate three pages of a bill <laughs> in one simple sentence. Right now, officers can use force and deadly force so long as they can justify it as being reasonable. That's mm -hmm. the key word. Dr. Weber said, let's change that word from reasonable to necessary, especially in the context of deadly force that it's not just reasonable but it has to be absolutely necessary before you use deadly force mm -hmm. so with floyd before it had to be necessary for you to put your neck i mean your knee on his neck and it would have to be necessary that you did it for eight minutes and 46 seconds no way right mm -hmm. if the standard was necessary i think we can all agree that then the officers are not going to be um uh, have a defense mm -hmm. So the goal for AB 392 was to do that. The problem is it didn't pass with the same language initially as intended because it got watered down, watered down, watered down. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is we want to revisit AB 392 and get back to that language of necessary as opposed to reasonable. Number two is a theory called qualified immunity. I could speak for hours about it. I'm not going to do that. Real simply it gives the officers a defense to when they use too much force. And when they use the successful force, they use this defense of qualified immunity and they're shielded. They're provided this immunity. They're not held responsible. 
we have to attack this theory of qualified immunity. We have to redefine these legal concepts. Mm -hmm. That's number two. Let me ask you about that qualified sure. immunity. Is that that's for civil case? Right. That's for civil. Okay. That is a civil, but and it's also federal. It's okay. a federal standard. Mm -hmm. The problem is civil and criminal are so intertwined with these types of cases, because if the standard is reasonable for us before you could be held civilly liable, well, then the standard is reasonable for us if you could be held criminally liable. If they have a defense of qualified immunity in civil court, they're going to have an argument in their criminal defense as well. So even though they're separate items, they walk hand in hand mm -hmm. because you're talking ultimately about holding police accountable, mm -hmm. whether it's from a criminal standpoint or a civil standpoint. The third thing would be to create an independent prosecutorial agency. What that means is right now, if there is an officer that is accused of unreasonable excessive force or an assault, or even um, any type of misconduct, the district attorney is responsible for investigating them. Their own department is responsible for investigating them. Mm -hmm. That creates an inherent conflict of interest. Right. You have the police investigating their own, the district attorney who's received numerous millions of dollars from a police union policing their own. It's not gonna happen. So this idea would bring the attorney general or some outside body that's independent they would then conduct the investigation of the officers. They haven't received this money from the police union. They're an independent neutral body. They would make a determination whether or not to charge. And if so, they would try the cases against the police officers in a criminal context. This is, I think, just an initial start. It's by no means an exhaustive list. Mm -hmm. But I think when we start talking and, and discussing these options with other leaders of other groups, we might be able to affect change in either legislation or through propositions and voting and leave it in the voters' hands. Uh, that's great. I mean, um, as we talked about a few times already, this is going to, you know, we're talking about something that's very complex, multifaceted, this issue of race, racism, police brutality. There's so many factors to it, and that's why it's going to have to get addressed in so many different ways. You know, people need to we need to keep talking about it. You and I are talking about it. People are talking about it on social media. People are protesting. That's great. And we need to keep doing those things. But obviously, legal change needs to happen as well. Without any change to the laws, uh, we probably won't see end result changes that we're, we're looking for. So I think it's great that uh, were you already in the works on this before this, you know, the George Floyd case about the task force? Was that more in response? I mean, I know, you know, as we talked about, this is not Unfortunately, police brutality is not new in the United States targeted African-Americans, but it has got renewed attention. So was that in the works or was it in response? The actual setting up of the task force in a sense of having something officially set up is new. These subjects are not new. These are things that have been discussed before mm -hmm. amongst lawyers, especially trial lawyers that, that are in the trenches and trying these cases all the time. But setting up something official um, actually marketing to non-lawyers, doing more of educating the community about these issues mm -hmm. to answer questions, that's much more new because my, my dad used to always say, look, if you're not a part of the solution and you're part of the problem, right? So I can be upset and I can um, yell and scream, but what am I doing, right. right? Besides yelling and screaming, what am I doing to try to make change? So that's the vision behind the task force is let's bring – our talent, our knowledge, our resources, our passion, if we can bring that all together and we can educate the community, mm -hmm. we can um, field questions from the community, then maybe we can find a way to propose a bill 
where if it doesn't pass because of political reasons, at least voters might have the opportunity to let their voice be heard. Mm -hmm. So although it is new in the sense of, yeah, we have something official with the title, Mm -hmm. with the board and things of that nature, it's not new in the ideas that are being put forth. Right. That Yeah, that makes sense. And like, you know, Politics and is an interesting thing. You know, you gotta, you have to have momentum. You got for things to change, and so I could see how things came together. Maybe even a renewed sense of urgency or a renewed sense of uh, momentum that could be be gained. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, after I watched the George Floyd video, I talked on my show and I said, you know, watching the video, I felt so much. It was heartbreaking. I was angry. I was sad. I, you know, for him, for other members of the African-American community who've suffered in this way for so long, and not just in that way. It's not just if you've experienced police brutality that you've experienced racism or the effects of systemic racism in America. Um, But what I told people on the show is I said, you know, we have these feelings, and usually our response to bad feelings, the ones that don't feel good, is to try to get rid of them. Uh, Either we numb them, or with these kinds of things, we might justify it somehow, which does go to like things like blaming the victim, things like that, or we try to forget about it. And I was asking people, and also for myself, let's not do that. <coughs> let's make sure we don't let go of these feelings. You know, feelings are telling us something. I always try to, not just in this case, but in general, tell tell listeners, your feelings are information. They're telling you something. You feel pain in your body, that's telling you something. You feel pain emotionally, that's telling you something. And so I hope people will hold on to that, the sadness, the anger, all those things they're feeling. But then just the feelings are not going to be enough. We have to take action. And so we have to take action with those feelings. And those feelings can be a great drive to make you do something. Something doesn't seem right, we do something about it. You Or you want to make it right. And so I hope people don't lose that feeling, but the feeling itself won't be enough. We're taking action and what you're talking about. I think it's wonderful um, to take action. And something else I urge people to do on that show is like, go study. First of all, study what's going on, books, listen to the great thinkers on these issues, listen to the people that are actually suffering because they can tell you a lot more than you can and try to understand it. But also if you can earn a degree or do something where you can gain some type of clout to make changes, you know, you as an attorney, I'm sure a lot of these things you believe you believed before you were an attorney or if you never became an attorney. But the fact that you are an attorney and have also uh, built up such a great character and reputation within the legal community, that's going to allow you to do even more good. So I think it's just another, you know, uh, I, I commend you for what you're doing and, and your colleagues and what you're doing. And I also encourage people who are listening to think of how can I make a difference in my unique way? There's not just one way to make a positive difference in this world, even when it comes to one issue like racism in America, but whatever it might be. And I think you're a great role model for people to see someone who wanted to take action and is using his hard work to now pay off in that you have this clout, you have JD at the end of your name. You could be Jamon Hicks and have these same ideas, but when you're Jamon Hicks JD and you say the same thing, it takes a different, uh, it has a different power. And I think that that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm hopeful that what you, you're doing, you'll keep us updated, especially uh, in California, if it becomes you know a referendum or something, it's on the ballot that people can vote on. I'm sure I'll have you back on um, if it happens by this November or whenever the election is that that would be on to talk about that. But I appreciate the work that you're doing in that regard. Thank you. And one thing I think is also important is that you have leaders and members of all communities coming together to talk about different legislation to get different ideas. Because mm-hmm. too often what happens, and I'm guilty of it as well, right, we see the highlights from the news article about what the bill is about, mm-hmm. right? We see the talking points, 
but we don't actually read the bill ourselves yep. to know, and we are not educated enough. And like I said, I'm guilty of it as well. Mm-hmm. I need to read the bill, look at it, and then provide guidance, explain it to the community. This is what this means. And right. then listen, what do you think? You mm-hmm. know, what do you, not just African-Americans, everybody, what do you think about policing? And what do you think about how we should police? And so that we can get, if we put aside you know, red and blue and our politics, if we just look at human nature mm-hmm. and what we think is fair and what we think is right, we can come with legislation that we believe helps the majority of people. Right. Too often we look at, well, who's supporting the bill? Well, I'm not going to read it, mm-hmm. right? Instead of actually taking a look or we just let different pieces of legislation die without enough dialogue. And I'm not just talking about the dialogue from the politicians. I'm talking about the people actually in the community right. that are going to be affected by mm-hmm. it and, and having an understanding of what the legislation means before we vote on it or before we decide I'm just going to ignore it. Absolutely. Yeah, we got to take another commercial break, but I, I agree with you. Uh, and I've, I've been there, too. I mean, I, I will hopefully read some of the bills and things, but I go into some of them I don't know. And if you don't do your research, it's very easy to get fooled. You know, it'll be like, do you want money to go to schools or do you want money to go to like something else that also sounds good? You're like, I don't know. And they both sound good. So we have to do our research and also experts like yourself, I think it up educate the public to better understand what's really in those bills. Cause it's very, the summaries don't really give you the full uh, idea of what's going to happen and what action will take place. And so democracy, uh, like anything, when you get some more power, it has responsibility and we all have power as citizens, but we have to utilize that power and take that responsibility seriously. So looking forward to having you back on when, um, some of these bills are getting ready to pass or that could be voted on by, by the public to, to give you a, our, your input. Um, but we'll talk a bit more after the break in our last segment about what's going on, what's happening, how we can all work together. Also coalition building something we've talked about numerous times on this show. Again, I'm joined by attorney Jamon Hicks. We'll be right back. Welcome back again. I'm joined by Jamon Hicks. And, you know, in the previous segment, he shared about some work that a task force he's on with other attorneys and other uh, community members are working on to help bring about some changes in California when it comes to laws relating to police police brutality and interaction between police and citizens. Uh, But we wanted to tie it back into what we can all do, as I was mentioning in the last segment. And the way I actually met Jamon is I think it was four years ago, a few years back, uh, at an event for the Iranian American Bar Association, we were both invited to speak. Um, I took advantage of the situation, and when I was speaking, after I heard Jamon speak, I asked him to be on my show while I was at the podium, which put the pressure on him, and he, I think he had to say yes. And so, thankfully, he came on. Um, but what we talked about was um, that time, and wanted to continue now, is that coalition building. That, um, as we were talking about before. Some groups might be affected by something, some, some might may not be affected by that same issue, but what we would hope is that if there's something, an injustice going on, that we all take action, that we all get involved, that we don't see it as someone else's problem. Of course, even this us-them dichotomy that we create in so many different ways leads to a lot of the problems that we experience, but to try to recognize that when we see something wrong, we do something about it. And then hopefully those same people, when something happens to us, they'll step up and help us out. And actually, that's uh, how I heard about what was going on was I don't remember. We were trying to talk about it during the break. There was some legislation that was going to affect 
Iranians, including other Middle Easterners, related to immigration, and the law seemed to be very unfair. And, and Jaman was part of a group that was working with the Iranian American Bar Association and others to try to fight against that. So it was not going to affect him or you know African Americans or other people in the organization he was in specifically. But they saw something that was an injustice, and so they took action, and that's great. And so I wanted to ask Jaman. This is kind of a big question, and we'll, we'll kind of discuss it together. What he would ask of the Iranian American Iranian community? Not everyone that listens to my show is Iranian, but the majority are, and the majority of our listeners here at Radio Hamra are. So I wanted to get some of his thoughts uh, on that. So, Jamal, I know it's a big question, lots of different angles you can go on there, but just wanted to see what, what, what you thought. Well, I think like we were talking about um, at, at the break, a lot of the issues that affect um, the Iranian American community affect the African-American community are the mm-hmm. same. And one big one that I think we can all agree is racial profiling and being racial profiled and how that feels, whether that's in the streets when mm-hmm. you're driving your car and being pulled over where we've coined the term driving while black or DWB, mm-hmm. right? Or whether it's in the airport when because of a certain last name or because of a certain look or because of a tire or because of religion, you're treated differently or you're, you know, you're having to deal with people's insecurities and their ignorance. At the end of the day, it's the same pain, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same pain that we are treated differently based on something we have no control over. Right. And the person hasn't even got to talk to us, know anything about us, but they're making a stereotype stereotype based on some ignorant belief. Our communities are more aligned Mm -hmm. in that fight in that battle. And and just because maybe it's not an issue for me because I've never been to Iran mm-hmm. and I don't have the issue with green cards or the issues with immigration, that doesn't mean that your pain is not my pain. Yeah. That your fight is not my fight. And the same thing when we're talking about being pulled over or being racially profiled, right? It might not happen in the same fashion. I don't doubt that that also happens in the Iranian community. But in the black community, it is a concern that men especially feel nervous every time a police officer is behind them. Mm -hmm. And so instead of just going, well, that's not my fight, that's not my battle, let's talk about it. Let me explain to you the issues that affect the community and how the uh, African-American feels about being racially profiled in that fashion. At the same time, you explain to us how it makes you feel being racially profiled. Mm -hmm. And when we talk and when we feel each other's pain, then we see that we are connected by the same human race. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always cautioned anytime I hear someone say, well, no, 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 I'm just colorblind, <laughs> right? That's a red flag for me yep. because we're all unfortunately programmed a certain way. We all have implicit biases. We all have stereotypes because that's how we're made. Mm-hmm. That's how yep. this world has made us. If we try to act like that doesn't exist, we're going to continue the problem. If we accept that we all are subject to implicit biases, and we are willing to talk about them, we can find a solution. But so long as we try to ignore that, you know, that it exists, like right. you'll, you'll hear certain politicians or even certain sports um, commissioners, even though, you know, Roger Godell finally came out. When people say, no, 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 racism doesn't exist. It's like, well, well, uh, no, right. you know, let's talk about the issues. There are issues mm-hmm. in all communities, not just the black community. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that there was also the issue around the same time of that speech with the IABA was also the issue with the wall and and uh, comments about a wall and how we're going to deal with immigration. Mm-hmm. 
And I have friends that were educating me on those issues as well. And I'm asking, what do you find is the is the right line between right. immigration? Educate me mm-hmm. on what you feel is the right balance, because I know we have to allow people and we should allow people into this country. And at the same time, I know people have concerns about how do we monitor, you know, certain things. So mm-hmm. let's talk about it. Let's have a discussion, and educate ourselves so that we can figure out what's the right middle ground that we can all agree on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, look, racism is everywhere because like you were saying, this implicit biases, it's not something that affects just some people in some places. It's everywhere. And even within us, and um, soon I'll be reading the book. I forgot the author's name, but how to be an anti-racist because, you know, as there, you know, people are saying, you see a lot of posts. It's not just enough to say, well, I don't think I'm racist. First of all, you probably are because we all have some implicit biases within us. But on top of that, that's not enough. You have to fight for, you know, if something's unjust, you can't say, I walked by this pool and this boy was drowning, but I didn't throw him in. It doesn't matter. You got to go save him if you're walking by. And so people are suffering in America and we got to, we have, it's our responsibility to do um, something about it and recognize we live in a, a racist world. America still is racist. It was built on racism and we don't like to face uncomfortable things. I get that. And actually my work as a therapist is to encourage people to face in, com- uncomfortable things within themselves, feelings, thoughts, memories, because I know that leads to healing. Um, and also on this show, I try to talk about uncomfortable things. Even today, we're talking about racism. I get it. It's, a, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't, it makes your you know, anxiety go a little bit up. What are we going to talk about? What's going to happen? You know, is it going to be okay? Um, or I talk about suicide or sexual abuse, things that are uncomfortable because I know when we don't face real things, the problems don't go away. They just get worse. And so we have to have the conversations that might be uncomfortable. And I hope people will continue to have them. And this is something uh, to the Iranian community that I talked about on my show two weeks ago and it probably came up last week as well. But we have a lot of racism in our community. I've seen it. And again, I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying it as part of the community that we have this problem. And even people, and they're writing it on the Instagram, within Iranian communities versus the Afghans, there can be some uh, discrimination. I just saw a book. I ordered it as soon as I saw it. It's called Afro-Iran, showing darker-skinned Iranians who came from Africa, who live in uh, Iran, who look like you any other African-American or African in any other area, but they're Iranian. And I'm looking forward to having that book and it also has pictures inside to share it to show, I mean, I wish we didn't need to see it in this way, but that we are all one family, that you might think Iranians is this us and then there's a them, but we can't really... Um, differentiate as easily as you'd think. So this us-them is very much something that comes into our head because we create it or society helps reinforce, okay, uh, race is so important, skin color is so important, but it doesn't have to be. But right now it still is. So as Jamon said, you can't say, you know what, I don't think skin color is important, so I don't care about it, I'm past it, I'm above that. No, it's affecting the world in serious ways. So you can't ignore the reality of what's going on. But within ourselves, when we think it's such an us versus them, um, we can start to see that that line is much thinner when we interact with members that are what you think might be different, you see are much more similar. See the experiences of people who are, are different. And let me also make this point. I know there's kind of this, um, kind of like everyone wants to be woke as far as being aware of what's going on, knowing what's the right words to use. And I get that. And I try to be that way. I want to be more that way. But we can't let that get in the way because we're all 
as woke as we are now, but we used to be less woke and we'll continue to realize there's something I believe now that now I look back on and realize that was not fair or just or racist or sexist or whatever the case may be. And so we have to be open to having the conversations without fear of being wrong. You're going to get it wrong sometimes. You're going to say something that might come off racist or not aware of what's happening. Um, but we have to continue trying to grow and not judge one another for being wrong or not knowing enough. Hopefully our hearts are in the right place. We're going to try to make things more fair and be aware of it. But we have to recognize that there's a lot of room for us to grow. I don't know, Jamon, if you have any thoughts on some of that. No, I, I agree um, 120% with you. And that is when we go back to Kareem's quote, because like, it, you know, it was just, it was just, if, if I could summarize my feelings, he summarized it perfectly. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's why I do feel such a sense of hope because of this movement. It was telling to watch. And I've been watching a lot of the protests with my mom, for example, my mom's been through, you know, the uh, Watts riots mm. as a teenager. She, she saw it, remembers it. Right. She was there for all the assassinations, the Kennedy brothers, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and many others that, that we don't talk about that were assassinated. The 92 riots and these riots. And for her especially, it's here we are again. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to older um, seniors, I don't care what religion, I don't care what race, it's the same thing. We've seen this before. We've seen this before. But as this continues, this march continues, and you're looking at the visual of, of the collective identity of the people marching, it puts a smile on her face, mm -hmm. and it puts a smile on a lot of people. Even, even Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said... I, I haven't seen anything like this. And he's yeah. a person that's been on the front lines of any any injustice that he finds. He's on the front line. And for him to smile and for him to have hope gives me the belief that we're headed in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. We're just starting. I mean, we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking down the path, if this is the beginning of, a, of coalition building and of talking to each other, and if this is the beginning of people using social media in a fashion to educate and to learn and to quote unquote be woke, mm -hmm. then I do have a bit, you know, more optimism. I yeah. am closer to the optimism side mm -hmm. than history side, but I, I'm cautioned yeah. because I, I need to see it right now. This has been a powerful two weeks, but we can't just sit back after two weeks and say, well, that was wonderful protest, right? Or that was a wonderful March or that was an important moment in this period this has to be something and we look back and history books talk about 2020 was a changing time. Yep. The same way we look at certain things that happened during the civil rights movement, you know, during the women's right movement, during all the mo movements, mm -hmm. there's that moment where you kind of see the momentum shift. Right. If we can look back at 2020 and say, that's when it shifted. Then I think we have a, you know, we have a strong possibility of really maximizing our strength as a community as a whole. Yeah, and I, I think that's so true. And I, like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic as well, that I'm hopeful. It does feel different, but, you know, again, when you're in it, it's hard to tell what's going on, how history will look back on what's happening. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, people, we can look back like civil rights movement. People talk about, you know, uh, Germany uh, during the Nazis and slavery and all these different types. Like, oh, how did that happen? Or how did people let that happen? Or, you know, what would I have done then? Or I would have done this. But we're in a moment now. There's injustice happening in front of you. You don't need to get in a time machine to go fight injustice. You can do it now in your neighborhood, in your city, in your country. And so we're all asked to do that. 
And um, we do have, uh, I got to wrap up, so we will wrap up now. But Jamon, I, I appreciate you coming up first of all to educate me and, and people who are listening about what's going on legally. And I know you just gave us a little glimpse as to how much there is. So I'm sure uh, I'd love to have you back on soon. Uh, I know that I have your support in any way that, you know, my community is affected. And I hope, you know, you have my support when your community is affected. And more importantly, that our communities are not two different communities. It really is one where we all hopefully come together and recognize we don't need to have these differences of who's affected. If someone's affected, we all should care. You know, uh, all human beings should fight for all human rights for all human beings. And so thank you for, for joining me tonight. Hope to have you back on. Thank so you. Really Anytime you want, I'll be here. Thank you. It. So again, big thank you to attorney Jamon Hicks for joining me. I'm here in the studio. Thank you as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Have a wonderful night.